0: A reading according to the second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, beginning at the 8th verse. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That is my gospel for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is sure, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of this and warn them before God that they are to avoid wrangling over words, which does no good but only ruins those who are listening. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by Him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the word of truth. Hear the word of the Lord.
1: Lord, as the words flow from my mouth, may they be clearly inspired by your Holy Spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, uh, we moved from 1 Timothy to 2 Timothy, and as I began my message last week, I said that this letter was written with the purpose of personal connection, personal challenge, and personal conviction. Our job as modern readers is to find connection, challenge, and conviction for ourselves as we bring these words to life in our time and in and through our lives. And we're not wasting any time this morning as we launch straight into connection, challenge, and conviction with the opening words of today's passage. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That is my gospel if we are to apply the same filter that we did last week, we can't help but ask ourselves the next obvious question. What is my gospel? The word gospel, or in the Greek, evangelion, has slipped into church jargon along with many of the other words that we use in and around church life. So much so that often when we say the word gospel, we say it without giving it too much thought or any thought at all. Gospel has also slipped into the common vernacular, especially when we're trying to emphasize a point. We say, that's the gospel truth. Ironically, when we use that term, it's often very little about gospel and more about us proving a point to another person. I'm sure you or most of you already know this, but it doesn't hurt to be reminded. But the word evangelion in the Greek simply means good news or a good message now, this morning, I bought a little bit of nostalgia with me. Well, at least it's nostalgic for me. I brought along my very first ever big boy Bible. I am sure I had lots of children's Bibles growing up, but this was my very first ever Bible. It did used to have a different cover on it, but that is long, 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 long gone away. It's... Um, even if you open it up, there you go, a picture on the screen of it, if you didn't see it. If you open up the front cover, I've put a little label on it. Uh, it's so old that back then, phone numbers only had six numbers. Um, and if you, um, if you can make out the little sticker that is uh, stuck there, um, my subject was Bible reading. I grew up with a good news Bible. And my unconscious subtext was that in this book was, in fact, good news. I mean, it's right there on the cover. I know that a, a quote that I used last week uh, really had a significant impact on some who, who heard uh, that message last week. is a quote by um, a German pastor, theologian and writer and teacher, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by the Nazis in a concentration camp in 1945. From what I've read of his writing, which is prolific, um, much of his fo- focus is on the revelation of God's truth and God's hope in a context of struggle and oppression. In the same way that celebrities often become elevated after their deaths, Bonhoeffer has become a kind of rock star for many clergy, biblical scholars, and avid readers of theology. Well, that's if rock stars were ever humble, self-sacrificing, and principled. Maybe some of them are. The quote that I used last week was, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. I'd like to sort of build on that foundation that I laid last week from Dietrich's profound words and suggest that Our life, if it has a clear message of good news, is much more likely to turn disbelief into belief, or at the very least, cause others to question their disbelief. I was watching trashy reality television the other night, as I sometimes do to try and switch off. Probably should admit that I'm probably more addicted to that sort of television than I would like to admit. Um, but I heard a statement from um, one of uh, the people on the show. And it was a statement that I think is reflected in much of our community today. And perhaps even um, in, with many inside our churches. This person was in the middle of an argument. And it was an argument about religion. And she said... I believe in God too. I just don't believe half the things that are written in that Bible. Now, I wonder if part of the problem is how we as a church use or have used this book. We've used it to win arguments, to prove points, to make judgments, to control, even to abuse. And as I mentioned last week, we use it to factionalize rather than to use it as I believe it was intended to be good news. So it does make me wonder if it is even possible to recover my childhood naivety that this book is, in fact, good news. I pray earnestly that it is. And I hope that today's passage may help us in that journey. But I have to be honest, there are some tricky parts of this particular passage. Paul asserts that this saying is sure. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The words of this saying that are highlighted today do reflect many of the teachings and the, the theology that Paul has in his other letters. And they are particularly reflective of his own struggle and his imprisonment. But many scholars believe that they Are actually words to an early church hymn. It's no surprise that the early church was singing hymns, or they might have been liturgical words, like what we say at the beginning of our service. But they particularly believe that they are words connected with baptism. And as I thought about that idea, it made more and more sense, particularly about context with its connection, conviction, and challenge motif, as we find in this letter. You see, in baptism, there is an imagery from the very beginning of the early church that in baptism we die to our old self and we rise to a new life in Christ. As we baptize someone, we are charged with running the race, And keeping the faith. And in baptism, we are reminded of God's faithfulness, despite our ongoing sinfulness. But what about the part that I've skipped over? The one that we all want to skip over and get to the faithfulness part. The bit where it says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. That doesn't sound much like a loving and forgiving God, does it? But what it does sound like is Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. The denial of a faith in Christ, once confessed, has a fancy church word called apostasy. I know it's more jargon. We like jargon in the church. But apostasy is the total rejection of Christianity by a baptized person who, having at one time professed the Christian faith, publicly rejects it. This was a significant concern for the early church which was starting to plant and mature and grow in a pagan world, which had cultures that were in direct conflict with Christian belief and Christian ethic. I think it would be safe to say that it's still significant in the world in which we live in today, in a secular world with a culture that, while it professes to be built on a Christian worldview, is more realistically built on self-focused consumeristic foundations. There are many reasons that people do turn away. But underneath some of those rejections is often deep hurt, The experience of pain and suffering, and situations where the church has failed to meet this person at their point of hurt, pain, and suffering. And even worse, where the church has been the cause of it. For these sins, it is the church that must continue to confess, repent, and seek forgiveness. The good news is that while there are many who have completely rejected Christianity, there are many more who have lost connection with Christianity, and particularly the church. Those who now struggle to believe for many different reasons, much of the doctrine of the church, but still profess a belief and a faith. Many of those when the census time comes around will still tick Christian, and many more will stick tick Anglican um, as their religion. And here our baptismal hymn reaches its crescendo. God is faithful, regardless of our faithlessness. The baptismal promise is one that acknowledges a need to continuously return to Christ. And when we do that, regardless of our maturity, or lack thereof, regardless of the gravity and consequences of our faithlessness, God will welcome us back as a beloved child. Because that's just who God is. God cannot not be faithful. I thought the best way to describe that was in a double negative. God cannot not be faithful. Anne McGuinness, who's the chaplain at All Saints, has a great framework that she often talks about that she uses to engage in a school context, particularly with people who are outside what we would see as the framework of the church and even Christianity. Rather than focus on what a person cannot believe in, she focuses on what they can believe in. And I think this can be a great model for how we might begin to re-engage with a secular culture and those who have rejected and those who have lost connection with the faith that we profess. But for this to be authentic, we first need to spend time on what we believe in and whether that is indeed good news for us. When I was a lot younger and a lot more stupid uh, in my early 20s, um, a friend of mine um, and I went on a road trip all the way up to Rockhampton and back, and we stopped off on the Gold Coast at a place called Cable Ski World. If anybody's been around the Gold Coast for a while, you might remember that. Um, They used to do bungee jumping, and they were cheaper than the one in Surface Paradise because somebody had died there. And being a student on a budget, I thought, well, let's go to the cheap place. And, And stupidly, I went first, But my friend was more stupid than I was, because as he was waiting, he struck up a conversation with the the lift operator and asked him a simple question, how many times have you done this? And he looked at him directly in the eye and said, don't be stupid, you'd never get me doing that. (laughs) Why would we expect somebody to jump into faith? when we're just riding up and down in the lift and never jumping. Or more to the case, if we are never brave enough to share our leap of faith stories. So let me return to the question that I asked at the beginning. What is my gospel? Well, for me personally, my good news is Paul's good news. That Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the Messiah. He is my Savior. The promised one from that book that I always knew was good news. Now, truthfully, when you unpack my good news, it's way more complicated than that simple profession of faith. But I know after years of studying Paul's writings, so was Paul's. But the conviction that I'm leaving you with this morning, the conviction that I have after being reminded by these words, is how do I live my life more visibly as good news? There's much in this book in which we can find good news. Every single word on every single page is good news. And your profession might be framed with different words to that of mine or that of Paul's. But if this good news is not lived It's not good news to anyone. It's just good knowledge. For it to be news, it has to be communicated. It has to be lived and it has to be shared. So what is your gospel? How will you express it? And more importantly, how will you live and reveal it? After all, we are a church that says we are revealing more of God through who we are. Can I pray? Lord God, I thank you uh, for the good news that I have found in this book. I thank you that that news continues to be revealed in the words on these pages and the lives and the examples of the faithful people that you've put around me. I thank you for the experiences of good news that we have in this room right now. Those leaps of faith that are being brave and bold and courageous. Those leaps of faith that might actually feel almost inconsequential, but when expressed to others, have profound power help us to really ask this question this morning and to find words that frame our relationship with you and how it is actually good news for us and how we might be able to demonstrate that in our lives and the relationships that we have. May the lives that we live reflect the good news that we have received and can't help but share. And might our sharing of that good news really cause those who do not believe to question their disbelief. I ask this in your mighty name. Amen.